Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Let me um, say a couple of words before I read it. Uh, I normally don't make a lot of comment before I read the scripture, but um, this is a psalm that kind of comes to you in uh, threes. Uh, It's almost like a triple whammy. Um, He starts off with three commands and gives three realizations, three more commands, three more reasons. So as we go through it, if you'll just kind of think in terms of threes, uh, because that's what the psalmist wants you to see in the structure. And I'm going to partly read some of my own translation of, uh, of this, which I'm often scared to do in public, but <laughs> I, I, I think you'll get the gist of it. Uh, hear God's word. Lift a shout to Yahweh, all the earth. Worship Yahweh with gladness. Come into his presence with a shout of joy. Know that Yahweh is God. He made us and we belong to Him. We are His people and the sheep of His shepherding. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For Yahweh is good. His unfailing love lasts forever, and his faithfulness down one generation to another. Uh, This is the word of God to us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of our God shall endure forever. Pray with me. Father, help us to understand because we can't do it in our flesh. Grant your spirit to us this morning to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Grant to us hearts that are pliable. And by your spirit come and deal with your dear people this morning. And deal with me. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My third son, Jonathan, lived for a period of time in Sacramento, California, working with General Electric. And I had the privilege of going out to visit him and to spend a little time in California. And one of the joys was to drive in my car and kind of go through the Napa Valley. Now, my interest wasn't going to the Napa Valley for what most people go uh, to the Napa Valley for. My interest was go to the place where uh, Charlie Brown cartoons were made and drawn and to see uh, uh, Mr. Schultz's home and to remember some of the things about Charlie Brown. I remember the story that you probably heard before that um, uh, Charlie Brown comes, um, well, rather Lucy comes to Linus and tries to line up Linus to uh, sing at the PTA meeting and uh, the Christmas program and Linus was asked to sing Jingle Bells. 
And Linus was very, he just did not want to sing. He's a lousy singer. He said, I don't want to do that in public. And Charlie Brown walked up to him and said, well, you know it says in the Psalms you're supposed to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Yeah, and, and, and Linus looked at him and said, yeah, but this is the PTA. Uh, in other words, God could take it, but he didn't think the PTA could take it. Well, Psalm 100 is a psalm that is calling us to make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's a song that's calling us to be thankful in our worship and in our lives as we serve Jesus Christ. And uh, it's an amazing psalm. It's fascinating. And what I want you to do is kind of walk through it with me this morning. And what I want you to do is consider three things with me. First of all, there is a call to stir us up to worship. Then secondly, there is the confession that's at the heart of worship. And then thirdly, there's the convictions that sustain worship and thanksgiving. So the call that stirs us up to worship and thanksgiving, the confession that's at the heart of worship and thanksgiving, and finally the conviction that sustains worship and thanksgiving. And when we look at those things and finish that up, we'll be through. So in the first place, there is a call here to stir us up to worship and thanksgiving. Verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now notice this call is first of all ecclesiastical. It's a call for the church. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve him with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. This term come into his presence is kind of code language for Old Testament worship. What he's doing is issuing a call. And later on, in verse 4, he does it again. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Once again, you have all this temple language. So what's happening here is that we're being called to public worship and public thanksgiving. And we're being called to be vigorous. We're being called to, uh, to go gangbusters about praising and worshiping the God who has loved us so much. And he uses the term, lift a shout to the Lord. Now he's not calling for volume so much, as he's calling for our hearts to be so thankful to the God who has redeemed us that our very disposition is to respond to him with thanksgiving and praise in every sphere of our life. And so it's ecclesiastical thanksgiving. It's what he wants to happen in the church. But notice also that it's exclusive thanksgiving and praise. We enter into His presence, verse 2. In other words, we enter into, in verse 4, His gates and His courts. We are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We're locked into Him as one person. And what that means is that we're to find Him as our greatest delight. As you're sitting here this morning, involved in a worship service at North Point Presbyterian Church, are you finding that God this morning 
is the greatest delight of your heart and your soul as you sit here in this place? Are you serving Him? Even as you sit here with your heart and worshiping Him this morning as your greatest treasure. But it's not only a call for ecclesiastical thanksgiving and exclusive thanksgiving that locks us into one person, but it is a call for enthusiastic worship. He uses terms like gladness. He uses terms like singing. Uh, it's lifting a joyful noise, lifting a shout. What does that mean? I think he's trying to draw up some images for you. Let, let me give you some. He's speaking about a highly charged burst of energy. Now, he's not so much saying that outwardly, but he, he's saying that that's a part of your constitution as a Christian. Your, your DNA deep within your soul is that which lifts a shout to the Lord. Let me give you some illustrations of how this word is used in the Old Testament. This word was used when the children of Israel marched around the city of Jericho. And you remember after they marched around it that number of times at the end of their march, they were to lift a shout to the Lord. And they watched the walls of Jericho come down. They believed Him. They believed He would do what He said He would do. And they were willing to walk. And if they, He said shout, although that was so unusual, they shouted. Um... It's also what's used um, when a British monarch is crowned. Over in England, uh, the archbishop will turn to the crowds and he'll say, will you do homage to this man? And they say, we will! Three times, will you? We will! We will! In a far greater way, the psalmist is placing the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth before us in this piece of Scripture the one who has redeemed us and loved us with an everlasting love. And he's saying, God's people within your heart with a highly burst charge of energy, you worship Him with all of your being. It's also like the shout of fanfare when your team comes on like the football field. You know, and, and you root for your team and nobody else. Well, uh, you yell for only one team in your heart. And the one that we're yelling about is the one who is our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all history. And so it's an ecclesiastical call and it's an enthusiastic call and, and it's an exclusive call because we're locked into one person. But I also want you to know that it's an evangelistic call. He says in verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. And what he's doing here is he's summoning even the nations and the peoples about us to enter into this joy of the worship of the one living and true God. It's a call to the nations. It's a call to all the earth to acknowledge that the Lord, that Yahweh is the king over his people. It's a worldwide, global call that has a desire of the nations even in view in the days of the Old Testament. Let me try to hammer this principle into your heart for a moment. This is something you should yearn for, that you and I should yearn for. We should yearn for it in Meridian. 
We should yearn for it in Mississippi. We should yearn for it in America. We should yearn for it among all the nations of the earth that the peoples about us would join with us and would lift their voices in praise to the God of heaven and earth and His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible teaches for sure that one day that's going to happen. In Isaiah, the prophet put it this way, Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's going to happen. The book of Philippians says the day is coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it hasn't happened yet. And until that day comes, you and I must be concerned about the nations. And we must be concerned about our neighbors. And we must be concerned to want them to join with us, to lift a shout to the hero of our salvation, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what's the problem of the modern church? The modern church has become navel-gazers. We look at ourselves all the time and we don't look out beyond us. So even in this Old Testament call to worship and to praise God, there is this call not only for the church, not only to be exclusive and to lock ourselves into one person, not just to be enthusiastic, but even to want the nations of the earth to join us in the praise of the living and true God. Now my brothers and sisters, that is the call that's issued in this passage to worship and thanksgiving. But secondly, there's a confession that's at the heart of this. See, it's not just based on trivia. It's not just based on how you feel. It's not just based upon experience. There are reasons. And there are realizations that when we gather to worship, we are to affirm as God's people. Are you ready? I'm going to give you three. Just real quickly. What are we to affirm? What are we to own up to every time we gather together to worship? Here's number one. We're to confess that the Lord is God. Verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. We begin with a very narrow, narrow truth. It's the equivalent of what is said in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. Know that the Lord is God. God, we acknowledge that. We confess it. We're unashamed of it. We're willing to die for it. That the Lord, the God of the Bible, He is God. There's none other. In that sense, as Christians, we're very narrow. Very narrow. And we don't compromise. There's something else we confess in verse 3. 
It is he who made us and we are his. Or you could translate that, that he made us and we belong to him. Now, why is that important? See, I don't think the psalmist here is talking about creation when it says he made us, although he did create us. I think he's talking here about redemption, about taking us to be his people. That we belong to him. We are united to him. We belong to him by adoption. We are a part of his family. We actually belong to him. We are his people. We, he is our God. We are his people. We're united to him. We are his. We belong to him. That's our confession. He's the God who saved us. He's the God who took us to be His people. He's our God. We exist by Him. And we exist for Him. That's the picture. The third thing that we confess is that we enjoy His care and protection. I just want you to think about that a minute. At the end of verse 3, he says, We are his people, and the sheep are the flock of his shepherding. Not only do we belong to him, but we belong to him as the sheep of his shepherding. Brothers and sisters, the God of the Bible cares for us. And we are secure in him, and we are secure in his love. We enjoy his tender care. We are the sheep of his shepherding. This morning, as you sit here in this congregation, do you bask in the fact that he cares for you? Are you overwhelmed that he is the God who makes provision for you every day? That when you get up out of your bed and you put your foot on the floor, that you're under the hands of a God who cares for you and who protects you and who takes care of you. You see, that's the confession that's at the heart of worship. We are sheep and He shepherds us and He takes care of us all the days of our life. He's good. He's gracious to us. That's the confession that's at the heart of worship. And then thirdly, there's a conviction that sustains or fuels worship. You see, it's one thing to make statements, and we know that those statements are true. But how do we fuel it? How do we keep this going in our life? How do we remain enthusiastic? Well, in verse 4, he gives us another call. He says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. There's this renewed call. Enter, give thanks, bless. Uh, it's all about him. It's his gates. It's his courts. It's his name. It's temple language. But then in verse 5, he moves to some more reasons. And these are precious. If you leave here this morning not understanding anything else about this... I want you to leave understanding these three things about God. And this will fuel your worship and fuel your thanksgiving to the time Jesus takes you over the Jordan River into the promised land. Why? 
Why do we give thanks? Why do we come into his courts? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we lift a shout to him? Verse 5, for the Lord is good. That's why. The Lord is good. There's the first incentive that is to drive and to fuel your worship. The Lord is good. I know that there are times in everybody's life in this congregation where you have questioned the goodness of God. I have questioned the goodness of God. I, I remember right before I went back to Hattiesburg, I was kind of helping with a church up in Pickens, Mississippi, and a young man in the church who had two young children was out mowing his yard, and a, and a limb from the tree broke, hit him on the head, and he died. It's kind of hard to... You wonder, the Lord is good, but, but, he, but he is good. We don't always understand those kind of things. Um, most of you probably heard about a man by the name of George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller ran an orphanage in Great Britain. In the process, he was one of those kind of men that saw a lot of answers to prayer. And um, uh, his only child, Lydia, became very seriously ill in the year 1853. And God healed her. Now, it's very easy to say the, the Lord is good when he heals your little daughter. But 17 years later, his wife Mary died of rheumatic fever. And George Mueller was 64 years old. They had been married for 39 years. And after a number of weeks, he decided to go back into the pulpit. He waited. It was real hard on him, but... He stood in the pulpit and he preached a song, uh, one of the psalms to his congregation. Now listen to this. Your wife that you loved for years and years and years died. And his text was Psalm 119.68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. That was his text. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. He had three points. Can you imagine this? The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Speaking about his wife. Second point, the Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her with me. And then he said, thirdly, the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. And he turned to his congregation. He said, look, I've cried. It's been the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life. But he said this, her happiness is great. Her happiness is great. God is good. We're never to doubt it. It will stun us at times. It will perplex us at times. But he is good. And he does good. But what's so beautiful about this psalm is he tells us why he's good. How is he good? In verse eight, it's verse five. It says, "For the Lord is good." Well, how is he good? Now, he says, "Well, let me tell you. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness." down one generation to another. 
He's saying, look, the Lord is good. Now, now let me show you. His unfailing love lasts forever. And His faithfulness down one a generation to another. That is how God is good. Now the word He uses here for steadfast love is that Hebrew word you've probably heard of before. Chesed. Or hesed. Uh, it's a word that's translated many different ways in the Old Testament. Loving kindness, steadfast love, unchanging love, eternal, unchangeable love for His people. He says, the Lord is good. Well, let me tell you why. His unchanging and His everlasting love endures forever. Now, what does that mean? It means that when God lays hold of you, when God lays hold of you, He'll keep you through thick and thin. It means that He's a God for the long haul. It means that He's never going to let go of His people. His steadfast love, it endures forever. That once He has grabbed hold to the people that He loves... He will keep them in the palm of His hand and no one will ever be able to snatch them out of His hands. That's the way Jesus put it in John chapter 10. He's the God for the long haul. That's how He's good. And then He says His faithfulness, His truthfulness goes down one generation to another that He keeps on gathering His people. He keeps on looking at us, even in our family situations. And he's, he's the God of His covenant of grace. And it just goes down. One generation to another. He said, that's why God's good. His loving kindness endures forever. I have a friend... Um, Derek Thomas, who taught at RTS and who's now at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, still teaching for RTS uh, like I do one day a week. He's written a book. He calls, the book is called The Greatest Chapter in the Bible. Not all the chapters in the Bible are great. But he's talking about Romans 8. I hope you'll buy it at some point when you save up a few dollars. It does cost about six or seven to get it. Okay? But his book is that the gospel brings you all the way home. You know how Romans 8 begins? It begins by saying, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. If a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. Will he sin again? Yes, he'll sin again. Will the devil come and try to lay a charge against God's people? Yes, the devil may try to do that. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know how Romans 8 ends? That there's no separation from Jesus Christ for those who are in Christ begins by saying no condemnation and he ends by saying 
no separation from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can sever you from him. That is steadfast love and faithfulness down one generation to another. Jesus put it another way. I want to invite you just to look at this with me as we kind of conclude this morning. Go with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the prologue of John's Gospel, um, which is a wonderful piece of scripture and a wonderful piece of literature, I tried to calculate as best I know how to do it, and I've consulted with a few people that are friends of mine who basically see the kessid of the loving kindness and the faithfulness of God that goes down one generation the best New Testament expression of those two words are the words grace and truth. Okay? Probably the best two ways to bring it over into the New Testament. The steadfast love, the grace of God, the truth of God. And so when John is introducing his, con- or his people to Jesus Christ... In verse 14 of John 1, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you want to see where loving kindness, if you want to see where where uh, faithfulness down one generation to another can be expressed, it's found in the person of Jesus Christ who was full of it. He was full of grace and truth. And then down in verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ Turn over to John 6, just a few more pages. In John 6, verse 39, are basically, let's just go. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Uh, That's the principle of of kessid and faithfulness. He lays hold of His people, and He keeps holding on them all the way through death, all the way through the resurrection, all the way through all eternity. That is His faithfulness that goes down one generation to another. That's why the Lord is good. That's why we may have some things that we don't understand, some difficulties that may abound in our life. We may lose loved ones. We may have strange things to happen to us, but we must never, 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 never doubt the fact that the Lord is good. And that His loving kindness goes down through the ages, traveling and chasing after His people. That's what David said in Psalm 23. His last phrase is, Surely 
goodness and mercy. Or steadfast love and mercy. They're like two dogs. See? Steadfast love and mercy will chase me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's why the Lord is good. When He lays hold of His people, He lays hold of them for the long haul. He loves His people with a love that will not let them go. He loves them with a love that will help them through every trial they endure. He's with His people through thick and thin. There's no condemnation and there's no separation. from Jesus and His people. That's why you can lift a shout to the Lord. You've got a God who once He finds you, He won't let you go. And He's good. full of grace and truth. And He's a God worth following and loving, serving, and burning yourself out for in this community for other people to know Him. He's a God for the nations. He's what people need. He's full of grace and truth. May God call us to lift a shout to the Lord, all the earth. And you may think about when you went to your last Mississippi State football game, your last Ole Miss football game, your Southern Miss, or whatever your favorite school might be. And it was fine for you when they ran out on that field to lift a shout to them. That's okay. But the Christian's ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. And he's our hero. He's our Savior. Lift a shout to the Lord all the earth. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm that comes to us with triple whammies everywhere we look, reminding us of our call to be thankful for who you are and what you promised to be and to do for us until the day you take us to our eternal home where we will enjoy it in its fullness. And so we thank you for the psalm and pray that you'd write it and etch it upon our hearts and make us a grateful people this day in Jesus' name.